In just a moment, we will return with another exciting adventure featuring a guest star from the galaxy of super superheroes. Max Ray, brilliant sea operations commander. where they can say, you know, oh, we caught the King of Diamonds and everybody can look at their yeah. cards and say, oh, King of Diamonds, okay. Hey, John. So we were talking about, uh, Jason, pull out those deck of cards. Oh, I got this, uh, yeah, I got this deck of cards at a an auction. It's the cards they used in the Iraq War to, uh, like, to track the... Oh, very cool. Like to track the people. So it's... My understanding yeah. of the, the reason why they use those, because I remember them talking about the, the deck. Is that, was that a military thing? Yeah. For over the radio? Do you know, that, John? No, I have no idea. I, I, and I'm honestly just guessing. Like part of... I'll admit there's a part of me that's like, I mean, do they do it just as a like... No, almost like a were, fear tactic or something even? Because they like, would talk about it even on... John Stewart, right? Like they would talk about, you know, Anwar Alaki or not Anwar Alaki, the uh, whatever, Muqtadar al Sadr or uh, the other one, uh, Abu Musa. Is Al Zarqawi in there? Uh, I think he's like the jack of something. Yeah. The jackass, if you know what I mean. I do. The real friggin' jackass. I do. He's a real bad dude. Pardon my French. <laughs> Wait, is that guy never going to be getting any redemption at all? Who? Al-Zarqawi? Al-Zarqawi? No, I think he got... Um, he, I think he got got. Um, oh, Tariq Aziz, I remember. I remember. Tariq Aziz, yeah. That was, yeah. He was the foreign minister, I think. Deputy Prime Minister, it says here. Oh, egg on my I face. I assume, my the, face. I assume the cards are correct. Yeah, no. The United, the Americans wouldn't make mistakes about this war, would they, fellas? Oh, my end. <laughs> you got oh, me. Oh, burn. Burn. <laughs> Damn. Some timely that's Iraq a, war humor. Yeah, that was... <laughs> That was that's an edgy joke, boys. Get any, any jokes about the Falkland War? <laughs> I made a. Uh, it it did lead to Elvis Costello writing one of his worst ever songs, "Shipbuilding." It's yeah. pretty bad. Look it up. <laughs> <laughs> As I don't see him in this deck, but I'm not gonna. I, I'm not gonna go through the whole deck right now. I. That's probably isn't gonna. That probably isn't gonna make for good radio. No, uh, Jason our, and our his radio, radio Jason's Jesus. looking. Jason, if I may say so, he's got a fresh cut. I mean, it is just <laughs> perfect Full Metal Jacket. Like this is, <laughs> you should be. He looks. He looks like uh, with the deck of cards. He looks like a struggling street magician. <laughs> <laughs> I. Uh, it's funny. I. It's funny. I watched Full Metal Jacket like this week. Yeah. Too. Yeah. But I got my hair cut a couple of weeks ago, so sure, Jason. Not, not. I, di I didn't. I got my hair cut in honor of watching Full Metal Jacket. No matter what you say, I'm. <laughs> no matter what you say, I'm still gonna hit you with the soap. I don't care about. You know, <laughs> I've watched poor, the movie too. I know poor, it's bullying. Poor, poor pile. Yeah, he was a nice kid. I think. 
yeah, you. I think he was just misunderstood. Uh, yeah, both uh, of you look pretty well, uh, pretty well groomed. I seem to be the only one here that's completely natural. No, well, that is. <laughs> well, well, is that I, what you call it, John? <laughs> well, I I hadn't got my hair cut or and or and I hadn't shaved since COVID started. Um, like the beard was really, I mean, it was really unruly. Like even by my standards, it was pretty fucking unruly. No, I think it's been pretty, it's been worse than that. I remember, I, I do have this memory of the time we went to see Watchmen and I met you guys at the theater. He looked and, like Alan, and, uh, what's his name? Friggin' walking in there. Alan Moore. Yeah. Yeah. Alan Moore. <laughs> and, the and wizard. I, yeah. I, rem- I remember you guys. I remember you guys. At least you and Judd, anyway, started started making the Alan Moore jokes and that. Yeah, I was looking pretty unruly then, but yeah, I just I hate. Sh- I it's laziness. It's absolute laziness. I fucking hate shaving. That's. <laughs> I th- I feel like I go back and forth with this whole thing. You know, I I there are some days when I think, yeah, I'm a fucking man. You know. I'm a, I'm a fucking hot dude, and that's why I need to have a beard. You know, I look in the mirror, and I see Clint Eastwood from the 70s looking, staring back at me, right? And then just some, uh, for some that, reason... That, that kind of Kodachrome bronzed beautiful, look. Yeah. Beautiful, you know, just with like a cigarillo in the mouth. And then I just catch a glimpse of one high def picture of me with a beard, and it looks, it looks like the picture looks like I smell. It looks like it looks like a like a like you know you know that scene where the Indian child comes out of the shit, you know, and you just say this is this smells bad to me, and uh, yeah, so I waver between these two extremes. I carry two separate sets of books, you know. I'm a man of full of contradictions, John. Stop looking at me like that. I've actually had the same experience. When I when the beard gets to a certain length, I start to feel like I'm like the Fisher King. <laughs> and when I catch a photo myself. And then uh, but then I shave and then it's Nosferatu. So it's you know, it's <laughs> there's, there's no there's no middle ground here. <laughs> Damn. That's pretty brutal. I <laughs> <laughs> I mean, your chin is not Nosferatu bad. Come on, dude. That's unfair. It's, Please, it's, I will uh, not. <laughs> it's a, it's a del it's a delicate chin. No, it's not. It's, it is. It's it's good. I mean, you the rest of it is pretty hard though. I mean, you know, the head is pretty good. <laughs> um, I'm gonna call you out on something, John. I remember. Okay. Uh, this is this is cancel culture time, dude. Sure. You're you're out. Um, I remember. It's my time. Yeah, it's your time, dude. Time to pack up. You are leave the leave Edmonton. You are coming back home to work at the refinery. And uh, a yeah. canceled person would never get a job at the refinery, dude. Come on. Sorry, he's gonna work at the Moosehead Brewery, where <laughs> he's just gonna. That's probably, fall. that's probably more realistic. Yeah, he's just gonna fall into a vat of moose green <laughs> and then come out. Just not like the Joker. He just come out just regular John because it's just beer. Because if he fell into a vat of beer, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't really do anything. It's not like radioactive or anything. But John, I remember a long time ago, you and I 
having a long conversation about Christmas and Christmas really taking on, you know, at that point we were full on, I mean, it was the height of like Christmas, like aggressive Christmas cheer. I remember this. I remember this period very well. Uh, support say I'd say the periods of 2005 to 2008 I would say now this is war on yeah this is when everybody's talking about the war on Christmas so it made people like double down is that is that the period we're talking about here yeah yeah, yeah 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 and John yeah. this son of a bitch he red pilled me he was the first one he was my Morpheus you know uh and uh yeah, I was like, I don't want to take the red pill. He's like, no, take the red pill. And then I take the red pill and it's a roofie. I was like, I can't believe you roofied me. But yeah, no, he told me that, you know, yeah, Christmas sucks. And I was like, yeah, it does. And he was right about it. But John has now, I think he has, you've done an about face, haven't you? You I son have. of a fucking bitch. You I son of a that. fucking bitch. You've yeah. done a, you motherfucker. Yeah, yeah, that's what you are. Yeah. Well, that, yeah wasn't, I mean, that wasn't so bad. I mean, it could have been worse. He could have been, uh, you know, 15-year-old girl saying the N-word and somebody could have... Oh, he held, does that too. Yeah, he does that held on, Someone could have held on to the video for three fucking years. Oh, yeah, to that then was get, crazy. To then you know, you know the, what saves me from that is identifying as a 15-year-old girl. <laughs> 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 I, can, I can do whatever I want now. That's right. <laughs> My Fuck. name is Brittany. I just got. Could... <laughs> yeah. Fuck. I don't. I don't care what that fuck Jordan Peterson says. He will refer to me the way I demand. Yeah. I. I know you're you're having a laugh, but I'm genuinely apologetic. <laughs> what are you apologetic for? I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I need to apologize to you for convincing you. Well, it wasn't just Christmas, I, the Christmas was bad. I'm not saying you. I don't think you were actually saying Christmas was bad. No, I don't think you actually said Christmas was bad. I'm putting a lot of. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you. Uh, You're projecting. Is yeah. that what you mean? Yeah. Projecting. English is not my first language. I was reading this. <laughs> I was reading uh, Martin Amos talk about uh, friggin' what's his name? Uh, guy who wrote, uh, you know, the Apocalypse Now book. What's his name? Oh, uh, Conrad. Conrad. And he's like, man, I love Conrad. And at certain points, he's like, but you can really tell. And he just cites one passage out of Conrad. And, you know, there are just constant repetitions of words phrases unnecessary extended extended punctuation you know just a uh it's just heavy heavy odd sounding punctuation and he's his new book is great by the way but uh and he does like a few like writing tips things to notice about writing and that's the thing that you notice about conrad he's like uh, is that that's a that's an immigrant thing and he, i guess nabokov had that too I think it's got something to do with just constantly thinking in two different languages, I guess. And that's what he says anyway. And I listen to whatever the white man says. All right. So. Um, I, didn't, I didn't know. Well, where's Conrad from? Uh, I think he was like, uh, that's not even, 
English wasn't his first language. Conrad learnt uh, English. Like, uh, it's like I think he's like some some sort of weird fucking Eastern European thing. He is. Oh, okay, is Conrad like was that just a pen name or was that his real name? Oh, Jason. Oh, Jason if you don't, if Malanson, you don't, if you don't make know, me look at this up. You no, you don't. You don't have to. I just wanted to see if you knew. I did a, not. He's such, a, he's such a people pleaser. He wants to look it up. Good. Polish. He was Polish. Polak. Fucking piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> His name was. I Yus- had a hard time of it. You know, give him a break. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, he's Polak. Fucking meatball. Uh, Joseph. Well, it's just Joseph and speak English. Asshole. Exactly. That's what I say. <laughs> gonna gonna write a bunch of classic books, but fuck it up with your fucking punctuation problem, you cunt. Dighead. Dickhead. Yeah. Fucking asshole. It says Poland, but it also says Berchiev Ru- Russian Empire. What does okay. that mean? I don't know. Um, Some some Ruski. Yeah, he's a Ruski Polak fucking yuck. Is what I say. <laughs> 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 that, that is you really yeah you can really say whatever you want about polish people uh, finally true. finally <laughs> they're getting the justice we they deserve no i don't think you said that christmas sucks but everything i think you everything that you told me about the tradition was accurate that the, all of the things come from essentially what is it one Charles Dickens novel and it's got nothing to do and you know the whole stuff about I didn't even know that I think I didn't even know that the red and white was all like that's all like Coca-Cola stuff oh yeah there there was more um, more variety in Santa's coats (laughs) prior to Coca-Cola prior to Coca-Cola getting a hold of them (laughs) yeah but I don't. Well, mean... in the uh, in the in the Eastern European tradition, he's he's often dressed in blue, as I think Father Grandfather Frost, and he travels with his uh, granddaughter. Yeah, they sing that Eiffel sixty five song usually when he's on the roof, right? That's a deep cut. <laughs> that's a real. That's, that's a deep cut, Arif. I felt like I just got slapped. <laughs> <laughs> um. Damn. <laughs> it's funny when you said when you said that I had to actually stop for a minute and go into you know the trash heap that is my brain and say Eiffel sixty five and he said blue so that must be connected to this somehow. Yeah. Like oh okay I remember. Yeah, yeah. They act- it's actually the blue. <laughs> So stupid. You should be ashamed just, of yourself. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I, I was thinking about the blue man group where one guy's dressed as Santa and the other two as reindeer. <laughs> just a shitty European fucking... All right. I think that's enough for tonight. No, I think that's pretty good. Um... Yeah, the, the, my 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 uh, appreciation for Christmas is is uh, is puzzling, uh, both to myself and others. I think, yeah. especially given the fact that I canceled Christmas for my family <laughs> like three years in a row, <laughs> my mid to late twenties. What do you mean? I just wouldn't receive any gifts. Uh, <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't give any gifts. 
<laughs> wouldn't yeah. do anything for Christmas. No Christmas tree, no Christmas lights, none of it. Just completely shut it out. Yeah, you did an about face. I think it was, if I remember correctly, because I was sort of like a stoic kind of guy, right? Like a stoic um, presence in your life. You know, sort of a broad-shouldered, <laughs> um, very sort of masculine figure who sort of considered all of your sort of nerdy rantings and and decided and then would go into my sort of fortress of solitude, you know, and then sort of contemplate, hmm, what is, what is this, what is, what did this four-eyed melon head have to tell me today? And I considered it and I thought, hmm, I think what you said was, I think if I remember correctly, it was that you had the, it was, and and I didn't know, you were plagiarizing Christopher Hitchens at the time. I remember that. He was like, I mean, why does it need, yeah. I mean, only the best, right? And it still is true. It's like, it was the Ramadan length of, uh, of Christmas that I think you really took the issue with. That was the, he's like, if it, I remember very specifically, he's like, you know, even the kitsch, all of the kitsch is fine. All of the cheer, the phony cheer is fine. But 30 days is just a long, like two months. No, that's even, it's even longer, I think, because it ends, because it picks up immediately after Remembrance Day, right? Yeah. In the malls and shit like that. Yeah, that's well, sometimes when... Sometimes it's concurrent with um, Halloween. Halloween. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shoppers That's... in particular, for some reason, is really fond of just immediately switching from the Halloween crap to the to the Christmas crap. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I feel you. I feel. I think none of what you had issue with was incorrect. Although I think maybe the mood has changed. Perhaps would you say that? Honestly, I just think that um, I'm more sentimental now. Sure. Than, I, than I've ever been. And for a long time, I felt guilty about it. And now I just kind of, no, I'm sentimental. Hmm. You know? Yeah. Not, and that's fine. I, oh, I remember no, when... it's not. <laughs> well, I remember when we used to do... I think the only way you could admit that you were sentimental when we were younger was just about, like, movies you liked or music you liked. You seemed okay with admitting a certain sentimental streak about that kind of stuff but yeah in your in your personal life yeah you 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 seemed you seemed less um less comfortable less comfortable with it but it's um but it's uh but it's good man it's good to you know it's good that you're not so angry and bitter all the time he wasn't angry or bitter I don't think you were angry or bitter back then. I went through periods, but I think everybody goes through periods. Oh, hell yeah, dude. Yeah. I suppose in comparison to me and Jason, you know. Oh, I mean, I was angry and bitter. I mean, I'm still angry and bitter. Uh, like, you don't see me. Well, well, that's the thing that's weird about since we started doing these podcasts, because, I mean, I haven't talked to John before we started doing the podcast, you know, maybe like four or five years. And, uh, and, and I just think, wow, he seems, he seems, uh, he seems, he seems more mentally stable than me. <laughs> well, wow. I, I, you know, a big part of that is is complete um, career failure, <laughs> and then trying to trying to 
come back from that. When did you, you have career failure? What, what What do you mean? Like, just what, well, I mean, I was I was supposed to be a professor, <laughs> and that did not turn out. <laughs> what do you mean? You're not a professor. You're not teaching. Well, I'm teaching. Yeah, I'm teaching. I'm writing, and I'm publishing. But I never get a tenure track position. Well, not now. You didn't. No, oh, it's too late. It's too late now. What do you mean too late now? Um, um, I'm all used up. What? I'm a, I'm a back alley tart. Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? Really? Yeah. Now, like, you yeah, just like, started you, two years ago. You, what are you talking you, about? You, you, you get about like I'm, I'm. You, you get about like a, a year and a half, two years to to get a, to get a position. There are some people that are very, very lucky. Um, but but for the most part, unless you're doing, unless you've done a postdoc, um, yeah, no, I'm, I've, I've aged out of it. <laughs> what in a, in a weird what? way. What do you what do you mean? Like why why do you think that happened? Is it just the like just is it just a luck of the draw kind of thing or um I think I'm good, but I think in the in the current climate you need to be great. So I was never really gonna be a great academic. I was gonna be a good academic. And I think because you have like you know, you have three hundred people, three hundred and fifty, four hundred people with like twenty publications applying for the same position. Many of them international. Many of them have certain identities that universities find um, compelling. And uh, yeah, there's just there's no way to, way to compete. I mean, I I think I'd have like I applied to 40, 43 tenure track jobs, and I got two callouts, one in the University of Calgary, and the other two memorial and i made it into the short list and the long list for a couple of others but that's about it what i guess the i guess the whole tenure thing um i mean what is that what does that entail exactly like if you are a tenured professor like, like i always hear people talk about it but i well okay so what so what it means is you, you probably move from a salary range of around 85 90k a year to uh, between 120 and 140 K a year. And it also means permanent employment essentially. So unless you, unless you do something really horrific, you're probably going to be there for 30 years. Right. Okay. Whereas if you never get that tenured position, you're always like, floating from contract to contract. Some positions could be longer term, but there's no guarantee where with tenure, there's a more or less a guarantee. Okay. Yeah. I don't think that, and listen, John, I don't like to give you compliments, but you are, if there's anyone that's an academic, it's you, man. I don't know what, where, so the, is there a, so you're saying that there is a complete, that there is a definite window past which your age is a factor? Like if you're not of a certain, if you've not. The, the distance I've been from, being strongly bonded to a research institution. Um, so if not for the fact that I have a, a current ethics application that I keep renewing, if not for that, I would basically be thrust into the role of an independent scholar. And it's really hard for independent scholars to get um, tenure track positions. So you have to be bonded to an institution, but there's, you know, there's a ticking clock on that. If not for this ethics application, I think it'd be really difficult for anyone to take me seriously. 
and then also I'm in, I'm in a non-research position. I'm in a good position. It's, 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 but it's essentially a support admin position. And that's typically not what universities are looking for. They're looking for either postdocs two to three years or a track record of um, research within an institution without any kind of breaks or the, the only thing I think that's really left for me is, is, is teaching track. Um, but those are incredibly rare. And the, la the last teaching track um, application I, I put in, there, there were over 400 applicants for it. So I, I, didn't, I didn't even make the, uh, the long list uh, on that one, which is around 40 or 50. So it's tough. It's a tough gig. And now when you look at the, the positions that are out there, they're, they're I mean, it's, they're deliberately looking for people who do black studies, Caribbean studies, um, indigenous studies. And if you're doing the indigenous studies, they want you to be inside an indigenous community as a, as a, as a member. So it's, it's hard. Sexually, you mean? Hmm? Yes, sexually. Sexual, sexual, yeah. Yeah. Can't believe you made that joke. You've been recorded and this is going to be go out to all of the universities. Unbelievable. Dude, if you are one of the... Ah, that is crazy. If you can't... If you, if you don't make it in academia, I don't know what kind of fucking person. I don't know what kind of retard they're looking for. But do you think... Well, you kind of... I mean, what you were just saying, it, I mean, part of it sounds like your interests... I mean, a lot of it seems like almost zeitgeisty. You know what I mean? Like, like you need to have interests that line up with the zeitgeist sometimes to get these positions. Yeah. Whereas, but, but it, it has maybe more your interests with... don't. Yeah, perhaps. Oh no! What I mean, he's I... saying is that he seems that it's like it's who he is. You know, is it? Do you think that it's an identity issue? Like literally, if you were, you know, an Indian dwarf, don't say it. Don't don't point your fingers at me. Uh, if you were an Indian dwarf who was into, I don't know, the um, the uh, identity issues affecting Singaporean um, uh, transgender, female to male transgender people in um, Hawaii, for instance. You think you would have an easier time with this, like getting a tenure track position? Oh, that would still be tough because I mean, the, the I mean, you'd be you'd be applying for indigenous positions where they're essentially looking for Canadian indigenous people, and you'd be trying to bring a a different kind of indigenous lens to it. So you, you'd have to fit yourself in there somehow. So it would still be tough, but yeah, I, I'd have a better I'd have a better chance for sure. But how much of a better chance? I don't know. Like I said, it's super competitive. So even if you do tick all the boxes, it doesn't guarantee anything. Like I, I know one gentleman who's a indigenous scholar and he's had a heck of a time um, getting a position, despite the fact that he ticks all those boxes. Um, and you know, who is it? Well, I mean, why? I mean, it could be too few publications or publications in the wrong journals or, didn't go to the right conferences, didn't, 
get in with the right click. You know, it, it's it's tough. Yeah, and then I think one of the craziest things that you're never told when you're very young as a, in a career is that, yeah, I mean, hard work and being industrious and all of those kinds of things matter, but the the amount that's attributed to just plain luck is is crazy you know well you know you know the, the my my translation of luck lately has been nepotism um <laughs> <laughs> that's, fair, that's fair too yeah. well well and sometimes like you know i'm not gonna name the company i work for by name but nike you know <laughs> nike that's right um but, but i started you know, but I started at the current job I'm at. I was an agent on the phone. And there was honestly just such a lack of competent people that we worked with that I was a fucking shoe in. Like when another position came up and I applied for it, I mean, uh, uh, there was nobody else. You know what I mean? So, so, I mean, in that case, it is, yeah, like I can attest to the fact that sometimes it is just luck or right right place right time you know um so it's also it, you know it's the cult the culture and support networks play play a big role too and i don't mean networks as an oh you're gonna network i just mean like there's so for example uh at my institution there's a tendency in certain departments where if you want someone to be in a particular role, you'll do everything in your power to coach them and give them as many advantages that are specific to that department. Sure. So they'll, they'll give you all the inside information about the politics, you know, who, you know, who you need to impress with, you know, with this comment, you know, you need a slide on this because that's going to be attractive to so-and-so. And some departments don't, some supervisors in some departments don't do that. They have the attitude, listen, I'm, you know, I got you through um, this program. Now it's up to you. And, and, you know, the sort of the open secret is that if you, if you're one, if you're in one of those places where people are willing to coach you and stick their necks out to support you, then you're going to have all the advantages, you know, in the world um, compared to, Someone who's, you know, because I mean, the reality is that in a lot, in a lot of university departments are actually deeply unethical <laughs> when you compare them to um, what goes on in other places of employment. Um, because, you know, I want so-and-so. Yeah, he didn't give as good of a, a lecture or a presentation as this other guy. He doesn't have as many publications, but I can see myself working with this this guy for 20 years. So I'm going to try and, you know. You, you know what, dude? all fucking places are like that man like i i mean where i work i've seen it like i've seen situations where somebody who was clearly more qualified for the job or maybe another way to put it is just that personality does matter and because i've seen it where there were two people going up for this job one person was clearly more qualified in a competency kind of way but they were such an asshole and everybody thought this person was an asshole and the other person got the job, you know, and it doesn't need to be as extreme as that. Like, not that you, like, you know, you're like, I understand if you're a jerk to everybody that is going to have an impact on you, of course, but even just if, 
you know, it's like, well, this person has better people skills or this. Uh, it, I, like, think, I, I think, think in my case, not, matters, not, yeah. not having a personality is really the, <laughs> it's really the deficit there. I'm just like, a, oh, who was that guy again that came here? We paid for him to come out. What was his name again? <laughs> I don't think that's true at all. I don't think you've ever walked into a room and s- spoken your mind and ever thought, and the people in the room thought, who the hell is that guy? They'd be like, I can't believe this fucking... Well, I, well, I hear you talk about this, you know, say things like this, and I wonder, like, are are you different now in these kind of situations? Cause yeah, when I think of you, I'm definitely with RF here. When I think of you, the idea of you not having a personality seems strange to me. Like you were a very, yeah, like you had no problem speaking your mind. And so is it like, do you think you're, you've tempered that in like I, in the professional? I uh, think I'm, I think I come across as affable but not necessarily memorable. That's, that's, what I, that's what I suspect because, you know, I know of at least one case where, where one of the people that got hired um, over me was extraordinarily abrasive. And somehow that, you know, fit with what they, uh, what they wanted. Maybe, maybe he came across as more assertive you know, what was but my, abrasive about him? Like what? In what way was he abrasive over something? Well, like you know, that? like when they were giving him the tour of the um, of the campus, he was commenting on the fact that the offices were small, um, that certain offices didn't have windows. You know, just little things like that. <laughs> he's, he's buying an apartment in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So you know, I mean, the only reason I. I thought he, I heard that he was abrasive because they told me that the previous candidate was abrasive, somewhat abrasive. And I was, oh, yeah, like, they oh. just put it that way. Yeah. They just, put, they just put it that way. And I'm like, well, that's a guy that got hired, though. So, yeah. So I don't you know. Gotta, he, knows, he knows something I didn't. You've got to go back to original form, John Simmons. Do you know what I, I mean? I can't. I can't. It's not just in, it's not in me anymore. Yeah. You need to go back to the beginning, my friend. It's, my, my, I mean, there's some part of me that's kind of rebellious, which is like, look, this is who I'm going to be. This is what I'm going to be like day to day, unless we're, you know, we're at the office Christmas party and I drink too much, then we'll have a different conversation. But I mean, <laughs> for the most part, this is going to be me day to day. So do you think part of it is, cause I know for me, like overall, I'm, yeah, I feel more um, settled now or I, I feel less, uh, you know, full of piss and vinegar, like, you know, when I was, like, when I was young. And uh, do you think part of it is even just, uh, it just gets too hard to function day to day being that way? Because I think for me, that's part of it. Like, part of the reason I'm probably more affable, I guess, as you might, yeah, as you worded it, than I used to be is it just gets too fucking exhausting, you know, like, like fighting all the time. And, um, yeah. So I know for me, I know that was definitely part of it. It's good fuel though. It is, um, it's a good way to wake up in the morning, you know, it gives you a little good, 
I do feel like it has a little, it gets a little, you know, it's a good Russia. Well, energy. well, look, it's 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 not like I don't get angry. I'm still I'm still a human being. It's just right. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I get angry. I get frustrated. You just pick your get, battles or whatever the hell. Right? Yeah, I get I get lippy and sarcastic, and I get on my high horse just like everybody else. It's just um, I just don't need that in my work environment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, academia is a very the academia, the, the level of academia that you are at right now and where we were at fucking arguing in the quad in Hazen Hall on a picnic bench is not like, you know, we were not, it's not the same, I suppose, right? But I suppose I think the older that I get, I certainly, you know, there's something about that, the, the, uh, the childishness that I miss, actually. Uh, but you like, know, in order in order to have that childishness, you, you have to know that you're in safe hands, essentially. And you can't you can't right. really you can't really guarantee that. It's in, one of in, two in, things in, t- in today's culture. It's two things. It's like there's this moment in that movie Mank, where this guy he is he's writing about. Uh, William Randolph Hearst. So it's Gary Oldman's character. He's the screenwriter for Citizen Kane. He's writing for William Randolph Hearst. And he knows, like, this guy is his friend, right? What's his name? Hearst is his friend. And he knows what he's about to write at some level is going to fuck him, right? And everyone, and it's sort of an open secret that this guy is a fucking dickhead, you know? Hurst is a dickhead, and there's this mo- there's this great moment where you know Gary Oldman's a fucking he's a, he's a bit of a drunk, you know he's most of the time he's just a bit yeah yeah he's a bit <laughs> of a drunk but most of the most everyone just knows him as you know he's just writing mostly just comedies right like kind of a Serbic kind of comedies, and you know they just expect him to just you know do this one thing for their little, for the studio's little poster boy, who's Orson Welles. And uh, that'll be, that'll be the end of it, right? For, but just for some reason, uh, maybe, I don't know. I don't know what it. Well, it, it's interesting watching the movie. I, I don't, minus, I, I don't have any of the wit or charm of, of Mank. So I'm lacking that. But I did realize that at my workplace, I am kind of, that person like it's it's like because the thing about mank is like i think they like having him around because he when he goes to the parties he'll tell the truth he'll say what he's really thinking but it doesn't really mean anything and it's not really gonna have an impact on anyone so they just to them it's just kind of amusing and I think at my job I'm a little bit like that too where I am the one who's like really negative about the company you know (laughs) like I'm I'm the I'm the one who's always complaining about everything or talking about all the mistakes that you know management's making and I'll say it to management and nobody seems to care and nobody seems to mind and I think it's I, that's good. I that, think, that, that, see, that's, 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 that's charisma. 
No. No, that is charisma. Because if I if I say something, and I've experienced this before, I make one flippant comment in passing, it ends up going down the rumor mill. Like, it's crazy. And some people can say things that are completely outlandish. And like, no one, no one bats an eye. So I really think it comes down to, to charisma. I think I have been told I'm charismatic, so it's that that is one hundred. Jason is one hundred percent not this fucking <laughs> deep voiced monotone idiot. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, no, no. Like, there, there's all different. There's all different types of charisma, though, right? Like, it's not all suave Bill Clinton. I mean, honestly, honestly, I think it's because. People, well, let I, I me think... just tell you, this company <laughs> is so shitty. Yeah, this I... company that we work for is. I did not have sexual relations in the lunchroom. <laughs> I, I think it's just because people, uh, overall, people think I'm a nice guy. So they, I think, if people think you're a nice guy, they let you get away with a little bit more sometimes. So I think that might be the the charisma aspect of it. I think might just be that. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I like the things I say to my boss. Um, like thinking about it objectively, but we just have that kind of rapport that she like. I'll just tell her what I think, and she's okay with it, and she doesn't. She's not bothered by it but i can imagine a lot of managers would uh, definitely not appreciate you know somebody speaking in the terms that i i speak in including with much vulgarity mm. you're like hey toots what do your titties look like and she's like <laughs> what well, there was once I was in a faculty meeting and I rolled my eyes at something. Uh, the, the, the person running the faculty meeting pulled me aside later and said, you know, am I boring you? <laughs> so yeah. I, immediately, I immediately got called out. <laughs> like this, and I'm like, I just said, I, I roll my eyes all the time. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> he, he was talking about his mom dying and you're like, whatever, dude. <laughs> 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 Speed it up, please. <laughs> what, does this have, what does this have to do with me? My wife, she was she was the most beautiful. Boring. Boo. He's got like the foam finger, you know, like the hockey finger. <laughs> um No, I don't think that I I it sounds like academia is particularly toxic. Anyway, so the thing about Mank, so there's this great scene where he like in throughout the movie there are like different scenes where he's just you know brilliant everyone at the all these rich people are like yes mank you know you know you show him you know you know go you, you tell him why roosevelt is bad or whatever the fuck right and why uh, are are they they're t- they're always talking about up Upton Sinclair. Upton Sinclair, Upton, right? Upton he's Sinclair. Like a, I didn't know that Upton yeah. Sinclair was like a socialist whatever Bernie whatever Bernie guy I, I knew, I knew that, but I didn't know this. I didn't know any of the details of him, like running for governor or anything like that. I only knew him because of his writing. I just knew he was like anti-capitalist kind of guy. Yeah, and then there's that scene where he he's just so shit faced, and he just fucking unloads on 
Hearst in the middle of this party and all these like rich people are like, whoa, this thing got real and he just barfed on the floor. <laughs> yeah. That's, it, but the thing about that scene is there is a line. There's a line. And you never know where that line is because yeah. he does go pretty far in other scenes, but everybody just seems to tolerate it. But there's something about that where it's just like, okay, you went too far. Well, for you, you when the, the interesting thing about that is the, you know, at that point, you don't really, like, you don't know the thing. I, all of these people, like all of these historical, I didn't know that Randolph Hearst was some sort of, you know, you know, I guess at one point in his life, some sort of secret, like, bleeding heart liberal turned fucking, uh, you know, asshole capitalist or whatever the fuck, right? Right. Um, and I guess well, I think it's they kinda, the way it goes, but... Well, that, that's kind of... I, I mean, they don't delve into it too in-depthly or anything, but even in Citizen Kane, that's uh, that's a little bit of his arc because he he does start out as more of an idealist. Yeah, you're right. Um, the younger one, yeah. I yeah. Now. And, uh, it, but then as it, as it goes along, he turns into the you know greedy uh, you know horrible capitalist or um but yeah it was no i thought it was quite i i liked it i definitely liked it but yeah that scene was definitely a highlight for sure and, and yeah when he, he pukes on the floor it's pretty well uh, there's certain some the, the, it's certainly the thing that i'm noticing maybe in just the things that i watch is that is about how much of the uh, oh hello who's talking to me uh jonathan simmons i can't believe it the rudeness to have a phone <laughs> ring um well there is this idea i think one of the things about creativity is that or at least a creative life or some sort of the life of writing people think that those things are the life of the mind i don't know life of the mind it sounds so needlessly heavy you know maybe pretentious maybe is that word but it was a uh, barton fink reference jesus Arf. oh yes it was get, isn't it yeah get the, he's like i'll he's like i'll tell you about the life of the mind. oh yes the... and it's funny that and it's funny that you it is funny that you interpreted the comment that way because that's clearly what, like he's supposed to be pretentious. Like yes, Martin Fink yes, is yes. obviously supposed to be an a kind of an asshole. <laughs> um, but did you get I, to watch it, John Mank? I didn't get to watch it now, sadly. No. no. Okay. But it's like so much of writing is just involves like th those things are just people are just born a certain kind of way to become a writer or to become to become some sort of creative person. That's really something that you can't really nurture. I mean, you can learn the rules if you have the uh, aptitude for it, but to be able to do it effectively, well, you, you essentially, it has to be an accident. <laughs> well, I mean, think about, I mean, if I think about... Like no great writer has gone through a creative writing program. None of well, the great writers have. Well, I mean, if I think about a writer like, um, you know, and I think you probably are onto something because if if I think about a writer like, you know, like Martin Amis as an example, um, you know, it's obvious or, or 
and you know it's obvious there is a certain inborn talent there but you think about somebody like i don't know if you ever read any um hubert selby jr but yes last exit to brooklyn yeah yeah last exit to brooklyn yeah um but which is self-taught this guy he's self-taught and he didn't really have and it's obvious that he worked hard at it there's something in his novels that he captures about the kind of this kind of dark aspect of life and humanity but as prose they're just not great you know like they're just they're really not great and it's it's obvious that because he didn't start writing till he was like in his 30s i think i believe he didn't start writing until he was in his 30s you know so i think it is one of those things like yeah like you said i mean you can't you, you know you can get to a place where you're competent like as a pro stylist he's competent he's fine um but there's there's just no overly there's not a lot of you know overly memorable passages when reading his stuff whereas you know if you're reading martin amos or you know i mean the people who do it usually so, do it young right like zadie yeah. they usually but you know there are I'm, exceptions i'm a little right? i'm a little skeptical go for it what's up go, go for it man especially if you got you got any counterfactuals i i just, um I'm just not sure that RF if you're if you're actually really supporting your your claim like I'm probably whole, okay. not. So for for example the fact that okay like all the none of the great writers graduate from a creative writing program. I'm not sure if that in itself tells us anything. And I'm not even because, sure if that's true. No. <laughs> I th- that's literally you know it's probably th- there's probably like a Jonathan Franzen or someone else you know like American. We're, ta- we're, we're talking about great writers. <laughs> yeah, I think. Oh I think, snap! You yeah, know what's the guy with the who killed himself? The guy with the uh, da- da- David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace. He taught creative writing. Did he? He, d- come? he did. He did. But did he yeah. go to one? Like a, I would. I mean, probably. I'm assuming if he, yeah. if he taught. All the American ones seem to. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I've never read Jonathan Franz, and I was just being needlessly uh, dickish. Controversial. <laughs> Controversial. Yeah. That was my hot take, yeah. Yeah, it's probably not. Like, I only know of the English ones who don't, who, who, who scoff at all of this kind of thing. Well, I think, I mean, I, I wonder but if... But you're probably it, right, John. But, but I wonder if also if, uh, you know... Uh, a part of it's probably the nature nurture thing where i mean so like martin amos as an example i mean clearly he's growing up in a household that i mean i have no idea what his relationship was like with his father but i would have to assume he's growing up in a household that encourages reading so he probably read a lot hilarious story his dad hated his his son's writing read it (laughs) He said it was just horrible. And his dad only loved to read, like, strictly detective novels. Only. Really? Yeah. He's That's like, funny. If the, first, if the first paragraph doesn't have a sentence that says a shot rang out, I'm not reading it. <laughs> That's, so yeah. he was a big genre fan. Yeah, that's what his dad, yeah. Uh, what's his name? 
Kingsley. Kingsley right? Amos, Kingsley yeah. Kingsley Amos, yeah. Yeah. Um, Big, uh, I, very close friends with Philip Larkin, the poet Philip Larkin, who oh, okay. had a porn addiction, apparently. <laughs> Was into, like, like uh, porn where people dressed up as, like, uh, <laughs> uh, like schoolgirls, I guess. Porn stars dressed up as schoolgirls. That was his thing. Um, his BDSM. Kingsley Amos or Philip Larkin? Philip Larkin. Okay. This was back in like, imagine how weird like that was back in like the 70s, how it was, how sort of strange <laughs> it would have been considered back then. <laughs> Hilarious. But. but but I wonder, yeah, I mean, I guess just to kind of burrow in on this a little bit, like what you're talking about with the, um, with with this, you know, as far as, where this creativity comes from or I, I mean, I, I assume it's probably, I, I would assume for different people, it's probably different, right? Like, because if I think about somebody like Stephen King, I like Stephen King. I, I, I do think he's, he's a good writer. Um, I think he's, you know, he's quite creative. Um, but I also get the impression that this isn't something that ever came easily to him. I mean, just based on the fucking stories he writes about the act of writing. I mean, it seems like if this is anything to go off of, it seems like a pretty um, laborious. Um, well, writing for him, writing for him is like digging a ditch. Interesting. It, that is, he, he, he has used that, right? That is yeah. actually the. I'm yeah, pretty, okay. sure he, pretty sure he's used that. He enjoys it. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's really happy with his ditch digging, but it's still yeah. ditch digging. But it must be some sort of weird sadomasochistic relationship because the fucking output that this guy has... Oh, he's prolific, for it's sure. It's crazy. So that yeah. means what yeah. he's saying is that he <laughs> he just enjoys putting himself through... Well, he, he, has, he has to do it. If he yeah. doesn't do it, he, he feels bad. He feels wrong. Yeah. He feels off. Yeah, so yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a some, yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a weird sort of compulsion. Compulsion is uh, all Turned I'm saying. Into a habit. <laughs> the, yeah, all I'm well, saying is that, that there is no that that the writing part of it. Like, there's a great scene in this movie by I don't know if you from the early '90s. It's called uh, uh, it's by Todd Solons. It's uh, Jason recommended it to me a long time ago. It was um, storytelling storytelling and early, actually early early aughts early sorry it's early aughts early 90s but sorry early aughts is what yeah. i meant yeah and it starts off hilariously and i won't ruin the specifics of it but um so it's an yeah so it's a starts off in a creative lighting class and you know the teacher is of course some sort of you know uh famous author who's kind of who's at the end of his fame now, you know, who's kind of been forgotten, wrote those two big novels and now he's kind of forgotten and he's writing, he's teaching, you know, to make money or whatever. Clearly, he's just over it a little bit. Yeah. And he's just listening to these people, these students in this creative writing class review each other's work, you know, like as though that has ever helped anyone. I don't know whether that process has ever helped anyone. But in that scene, what you realize is that he appears to be the only real writer in the entire room, as in the person who can own, even though you don't really get to read any of his 
prose or anything like that the way the guy plays it with a certain kind of confidence that you know i think you just recognize a writer just recognizes another writer it's sort of like uh, mm-hmm. you know you, you you can smell each other it's like the highlander you know what i mean uh well, you just notice the other person is in the room and the whole time what he's doing you have to doing, kill them later <laughs> exactly well and there's that hilarious scene where the guy with uh does he have cerebral palsy i yes, think yes he does yeah the guy, yes, the guy with cerebral palsy who writes he writes his story and everybody in the class is like that was really good that was really great and then the teacher is he just he's kind of leans back and he's just sitting there and he just says he what did you, you've seen it recently what what do you remember exactly what he says but he basically says that was is, shit that was <laughs> shit yeah it's a like a super like really maudlin autobiographical story about how he's in love with this girl and this girl doesn't like him and you know the girl is of course sitting in the class you know and you know he's reading this out to her and everyone knows who he's kind of talking about and this dude this teacher is he's just over it he's like you fucking i'm supposed to sit here and listen to your shit story just because you're fucking crippled <laughs> that that Hilarious. movie is but that movie is genuinely um provocative you know like at a time when i think that term gets thrown around pretty loosely and certainly in regard like about movies that i just don't think it's warranted i mean i mean i think in 2001 that was probably quite inflammatory like especially that opening story because i mean you have the idea of the black professor who knows that all the white girls in the class want to fuck him and so he's he's fucking all the all the girls in the class and then you he does deal with this this thing where you know because it's like a liberal arts college so they're they all are worried like am i being racist am i you know like is this racist that i want to fuck this guy and like he's really delving into uh you know a, a lot of very quite just kind of head first dives into this these topics that are very taboo you know well i don't know whether he's i mean the, the most and i don't even taboo, know if it's the intention but yeah the most taboo part about that is the idea that within american life there is this idea that the, <laughs> that becoming a creative of some sort will finally free you of the boredom and tedium of living a life in the burbs you know all of these guys all of these like liberal arts kids they just think you know if i can just attach writer or filmmaker mm. to the identity somehow i'll be able to just break free of the straitjacket that i was born into right and that's that what the whole movie is about is young paul giamatti as a creepy documentary <laughs> filmmaker as well it's great um but... which is like yeah and he's making a documentary that would be reminiscent of um calling for columbine no that pbs 
it's it's oh. that PBS documentary from the seventies where it was like one of the first reality shows where they they went into this uh family's house i think it's called like america this american life or something like that okay. they went into this family's home and just filmed them and this was one of the first shows might have been the first where um they had done this and um actually that movie have you ever seen real life by albert brooks I don't think so. it's his first movie no. He he kind of spoofs it a little bit in that, like his character is trying to make a documentary like that. Um, but um, but anyway, so I think that's probably the kind of film that Paul Giamatti's character is trying to make. But it's very it's very interesting, yeah. Like it it really deals with this idea of you know the relationship between the artist and their subject even like that's something that kind of gets dealt with in in, in the film uh, well, quite quite a bit these kids or these all of the cr- people who sort of yearn at this life of creativity think that at some level if they <laughs> you know if they become these things you know for Paul Giamatti his girl that that girl that he was in love with will finally she'll be like right. yes of course you're a successful filmmaker of course i love you yeah when he calls I'm leave my husband and three oh, kids yeah. you know <laughs> um and everything will be great or that kid who's just in that weird family with john goodman yeah. he's just he's like if he gets on conan for some reason everything will be fine you know everything will be fixed and you know, nowhere are these people ever told that that you are going to be... The only way to do this is if you can be comfortable with being a wanderer constantly or feeling like a wanderer constantly. Uh, well, I, th- I, think, I think one of the things he was um, prescient about i mean i think it was happening to a certain extent already like because this was post-american beauty right because there's a small reference in there too yeah he mocks it yeah the the he's obviously making fun of the scene where he shows her the video of the bag the bag flying yeah but um but one of the things about the movie that's a bit prescient and i mean he again he's reacting to things that would have already been happening but it's so much more extreme now it's the idea that of people who want to be famous like for nothing. Like they want to be famous just to be famous um, because the kid keeps talking about wanting to go on Conan, but he doesn't really have any skills. He's not practicing anything. He's not like, Oh, I'm trying to become a musician or I'm trying to become a writer. He's just, he's literally not doing anything but he's like, oh, but I want to be on Conan, yeah. and it real—it's very reminiscent of, of a lot of people you see now, like the what do you call them, the like social media influencers and people like that. Where, I mean, these are people who are famous for just being nothing, fam- yeah. you know, yeah, like you know. So he's very—he definitely had his his finger on on the pulse with that aspect of the story that I think has just become more um, prevalent in the culture since this movie was released. You know how I know that I, re- I think it's only realized now that I know there's like 
oh, I am not a creative person at all. It's because I, I think for a long time, it's a stupid thing. I thought like I wasn't ready yet. Like I needed to know more things to be yeah. a creative person. And I just realized that like, the people who are really creative and smart and just writers and artists and all of those kinds of people, they just they don't care that they don't know things. They're just like, this is the thing. Here it is. And I'm an ignorant person. I don't care if I'm ignorant about something. Just here it is. You know? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure I agree. I think there's, I think there's a weird, <laughs> on the one hand, what, I, what I've heard you talk about in terms of creativity is a weird kind of romanticism of writing compared to any other craft one might engage in. But at the same time, like this, this self-deprecating thing that like certain people are creative and other people aren't creative and that they fit a particular mold. But, you know, I guess the happy thing or the sad thing, depending on how you look at it, is that who is and is not creative looks a hell of a lot more random than that. Like there, you know, for every rule that you come up with, you know, that you have to set, for example, like say for writers, oh, in order to be a writer, a great writer, you have to treat writing like a job and you need to sit down at your desk every day, write, you know, until the blood shows up on the, the keyboard or whatever in the paper. But for every writer who follows that philosophy, there's a writer that waits until the week just before the deadline and just binge writes everything. You know, there's the writer that, for every writer that says, oh, you don't need to be inspired to write, there is some writer that, you know, writes a book every three years and they wrote it based on inspiration. For every writer that is resilient, that works through rejection after rejection after rejection and they just keep going, there's a writer that, despite having a professional career, still crumbles every time they see a rejection. So I think trying to get a handle on what, make someone creative versus not i think that's just the wrong way to look at it i don't think that anyone who produces anything can can e- can so easily be categorized um yeah i i i agree i agree to with i definitely agree to a certain extent and even what and i think there's a certain idea in what you were saying or if that you know I think while I think the idea of of like waiting for life fix one thing I I will say is I think a truly creative person they might get better when they get that experience but I agree they're not going to wait for it like they're just going to work and they're going to work and work and work and and you know like Louis CK right like he would be the perfect example of that where he basically feels like his stand-up comedy prior to when he was what like 40 is all yeah. shit like he thinks it's all trash he hates it um but obviously there was something about him working it and working it and working it developing his craft that then when he had something what he felt like he had something to say or something of value he sort of had that craft to draw back on, but yeah, I mean, certainly uh, with songwriters, I think it's an easy one 
to really view that aspect that you're talking about, John, the like different ways to do it, where there's somebody like Neil Young, where I know he's very much a like, wait for the inspiration to arrive kind of guy. But I know Nick Cave um, is a like, go nine to five. I mean, there was a time when he actually had an office away from his house that he went to every day like it was a job and he wrote, you know, from, from not, you know, nine to five. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think it is just, I, yeah, there's definitely no roadmap for it. And I don't know if there are many generalizations you can really make about what create, what sp- causes creativity or what kind of makes it happen you know yeah Yeah. and i there's also the you know i used to say that the the person who's creative or has some success with their creativity is just the person that was comfortable with their failure like they could kind of live in that space where they were producing garbage and they'd be okay with it but even that isn't true there are writers who are tortured throughout the entire process. They find the entire process uncomfortable. So they, the fact that they keep going, I guess, is what's the curious, is what the curious thing there. And I think that has more to do with a personality trait than the craft or, or something more magical. I think yeah. some people are just maybe more resilient with certain processes than other people. I think it's, well... I actually am happy to agree with everything that you guys said. Yeah, I agree that it's not, it's certainly not magical, but what it is, is I think it is, uh, it is a kind of um, do- luck, you know, it it, it is because sim- there is no reason, because I get asked sometimes, I'm not by any, I don't consider myself a comic or anything like that, but in the in the little that I've done it, and then in the few shows that I've done, people ask me about what a, well, how can you stand the embarrassment or the fail? Like, what is it? You know, what if they don't like you? What if you don't like the, what if they don't like the jokes? How can you stand the the silences? And trust me, I've gotten a lot of silences. There's a lot of, there's been a lot of hatred. But the, But it's been good as well, right? But, all I can tell you is that I don't really know. All I can say is that it uh, that that it's a mixture of a I don't care, which is partially true, and b I do care. I care a lot, but you know, uh, it's all I care so much that it's almost suicidal. Do you know? Do you know what I mean? Like it's uh, it's to the point where uh, your hatred is, is is just as good as uh, as your adoration, you know, your laughter. Um, and that's where it comes into sort of the weird, like it's a weird kind of nihilism. But I don't, you know, I just don't question it. You know what I mean? Like there are certain times where you like, where you go in there, you're like, I really hope I do well. And you do okay. And the strange thing is, there are some times where like, I fucking hate all of these idiots. And you go out there and the disdain somehow is funny as well right 
I have no control over whatever that thing is that you know that causes a success to happen. I know that it's not got it is out of my control is what I'm saying. Well you you do have control over whether or not you get up on stage. I that's do. what you that's what you have control over. No, but the at I mean the, But we're not necessarily talking about the like success. I mean at that point you're talking about whether That's that's that really is magical and mysterious. I have no idea about that. I'm just I just yeah, I think Jason's right. I'm just talking about the actual the creation. Yes. The, the, the what, I'm, what I'm saying is that the instinct to just go out and attempt to do it is a kind of that the, the, is mysterious. It's a lot more mysterious than we think it is. I think that a lot of the writing programs and you know the liberal arts programs seem to think that you can you can impress creativity onto children or people or the creative life onto onto people uh and that's just not the way it works you know you can teach them how to paint you can teach them how to write a sentence but their impulse or the need to write a sentence the, the need to create a joke is it's, it's you don't have but i think but i think part of it and i agree I, I i agree like that the that passion or that genuine desire to want to do this isn't something that you're going to create whole cloth i think it's something you can help nurture within someone though who might have that like there might be somebody who perhaps has like this desire to want to do that or to, to you know be creative but they don't understand it or they they don't know how to go about it so i think you can help in that way like i think that probably is one of the areas in which um that can be you know that these kinds of programs probably can be useful and, and even if it's not it's not even about like uh, creative writing or teaching children a specific craft, but I think even just teaching children um, the love of, of, of creativity, you know, like, like I'm not a creative person. I'm not, um, you know, I'm not any kind of an artist, but I think just my passion for, novels and film and music has enriched my life i i think so like i think just being exposed to those things and and having a genuine love and appreciation of these things is something that has made my life yeah better than it probably would have been without those things so so I think it's, you know, so I think it's, I think it's good even just in that way to teach people to appreciate art. Definitely, man. Like the, the appreciation is not something that I have a issue with. By the way, I think there's something very interesting in this, in this, in this book. He writes about the, like he goes at length to tell you in these like little writing journals that he's at. If you're a reader at some level, 
you are also a writer and he attempts to make this very strange I've never read a writing manual that just insists on you trusting your own uh, instincts when it comes to when it comes to you writing. So he really sort of op- as much as he sort of closes the door on a whole bunch of things, he attempts to open the door on some sort of raw. Like you know this, you got this, you know you know how it's this how the sentence is supposed to sound in your head. So just rewrite, just say the sentence over in your own head thing that you just wrote and you'll figure out what the right way to write it is you know forget all about the you know understand all of the rules of grammar but you know consider them as just you know nudges in the right direction rather than you know rules but yeah he has this very weird thing about because the the film watcher the guy who watches the movie and the guy who makes the movie are definitely two very different people the guy who listens to music and the guy who plays the instrument are two very different people. The reader and the writer is, it's a very different, there's a, there's, it's because it's so, because those two things are so, like, the, it can switch over so quickly, reader and writer, that, you know, that relationship is a lot more... Uh, what, do you, what do you mean? Well... The only difference between the reader and the writer is the fact that is the act, you know, one is reading, the other one is is writing. It, the the medium is exactly the same, right? You, the the writer becomes the reader immediately, you know. I mean, I guess the maybe, guy who's making the movie. You know? I, I I understand, like, I mean, and we all write, obviously, like even if it's just an email or whatever, but I mean, we're all writing. So I, I mean, I sort of get what you're saying, but I don't, I don't know. That seems a little, it, it just, I don't know. There, it there's seems, something off about this to me. I think I'm, I'm not, I'm going to take a position here that it's not one that I actually believe, but I think it best gets at what I'm trying to say. I don't think, the gap between the person who consumes a creative product and the person who does the creation is, is as big as, as I don't think they're two different. I don't think they're two different people. I think, I think the, the only thing that separates the, the two of them is that the creative person at one point had a thought, I'd like to try that. And I think that everything that they learned from consuming 100% informs what they're creating. So they, they build off of what they've learned from consuming. They've, they realize, oh, actually, oh, this is a hell of a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. But that, that I used to appreciate so much is actually a lot easier than I used to think it was. You know, I, and I mean, I, I only have insight to, on this on a very small scale, but in, I, in probably one of the least creative um, forms of writing, which is academic writing. But I don't think the person who writes the journal article is all that different from the person who reads the, the, jur- the journal article. Like, I agree. It's, it's, it's a more transparent form of writing than other types of writing, but you can, if you, you can use that as a baseline to think about how 
people work in other genres. So to, to give you an anecdote, there's this famous story about um, a really good genre writer. His name is Jim Butcher. And he had tried to write a bunch of things and it never turned out. He never finished anything. He just wasn't happy. And he took this creative writing class and he had this professor who was really obstinate about following a particular process for writing a novel right down to the scene level. And he was a contrarian. So he says, you know what? I'm going to do everything that you tell me to do exactly to prove you wrong, that this is garbage. This is not a way to engage in a creative process. You've tried to turn it into this blueprint, almost like the, all those screenwriting, you know, three act structure, story manuals, you know, you can't do that. So he went and he did all of it and he ended up, ended up getting a contract for a 20 book series. Now he, he's not someone that you would consider a great writer, but he's a very good genre writer, which I think counts for something. And, and he said that he was not someone who wrote all of his life, was not a creative person, was not inspired, was just kind of workmanlike. And the fact that, now obviously there's something more going on there than just following someone else's rules. But I think following those rules, whether you think of them as kind of constructed and flexible or like, you know, hard rules, you can get to something that's okay. You can get to something approaching competence. And I don't think the, the people who, are, who want to be creative, who can't produce anything, I don't think their issue it has anything to do with the place that they're coming from. I think, I think a lot of them could probably get to a place of competence. I think you could probably take a reasonably intelligent person who has never written anything before but can, you know, string two words together. And within a year, you can get them to produce something that's going to be okay. But I don't think that that's how we judge creativity in, in writing fiction or how we judge creativity in, in film. We judge it on the basis of, of the masters. You know, like, oh, I don't know, I understand how Coppola does this or, or Scorsese does this. Well, yeah, but that's not the part that you want to start with. You want to start with Roger Corman. <laughs> can, right. I, can I make a Roger Corman film? And I guarantee out of 100 people in a room, at least 10 of them can make a Roger Corman film if they have the resources. Can I write a young adult fantasy about vampires? That's your starting place. I think you can get most people to a place where they can write Twilight with very little effort. I, but can you get them to a place where they write like Martin Amos? No. And that's probably where the magic and the mystery comes in. But I think that the, the, it's because the barrier for entry is so different. Like I know people that make independent films now on their own dime that are never going to be famous, that are never going to get into Hollywood, are never going to be given even a commercial, but they make okay independent films. Like they create products that are coherent, that follow you know, the, the master shot, close up, medium shot, you know, they get their dialogue in. It matches the lips that are moving. The lighting is okay. You know, they can get part of the way there. They're just not going to be Scorsese. But everyone who takes a film course wants to be Scorsese. Everybody who goes into a creative writing program wants to be Martin Amis. And 
they realize the huge distance between them and Martin Amos. They're never going to be Martin Amos. But I think with some tutelage, they could probably write an article for the New Yorker. Well, it, well, it's it, it, well, it's it's interesting too because, but it is interesting the the kind of way you've um, d- demarcated uh, the kind of strata of I don't know how to word it like creativity within different fields because because I do think one of the things about film that probably does make it a little bit different than other mediums as far as just the way it's been discussed um, in what, and even in like kind of film historian, film critic kind of circles is that I think there is a real reverence for the craftsman for the person, like, like Don Siegel as an example, like film buffs fucking love Don Siegel. You know, he's very good. I really like him as well. I I'm a big fan of a lot of his films. They, none of them resonate with me the way like, uh, you know, like a Peckinpah or a Scorsese does, but they're really good. And I, I really enjoy his work. So I, I do think with, film they there might be a little more reverence for that kind of competent craftsman you know or even think about somebody like Soderbergh I mean he's you know I I think his career early on is maybe a little bit different like I think there was a he talks about it himself like he wasn't quite sure the way he wanted to go you know, but I think at some level he decided to have the Michael Curtiz career, you know what I mean? Or the Don Siegel career. Like he just wanted to dabble in different genres, do different kinds of movies um, and just work on his craft and build up his competency. And, and that's what, you know, like if we're talking about the most revered, films of the last 20 years as an example there probably isn't going to be many Soderbergh movies that are going to make that list but magic if people <laughs> maybe people do love Magic Mike but but if people talk about directors that they really like and they really respect Soderbergh's always you know is usually going to be in that conversation um, I, you know I, I don't think it's I feel like I'm denigrating him a little bit. Like, I, I think he's better than just being a, you know, competent craftsman. I mean, I think he's better than competent, but, but, but I do think there's like a lack of pretension maybe to what he does, which is interesting. Cause I think early on he was thought of as pretentious. I think if you read the reviews of his nineties movies, that's a label that gets tossed at him a lot, you know, when he's doing like Kafka and, um, you know, even something like the underneath, um, with just some of it's like kind of stylistic stuff, um, choices. But uh, I think at some level he, well, you can tell what he does is very different from what a lot of other directors, he seems to, to be obsessed with every aspect of the you know like 
of the process, you know, mm. of the technical process, you know. Sure. I'm in the, I, I had a friend, a couple of friends of mine are, are attempting to write this, you know, to do some sketches. And one of the hardest things I realized, like this thing that I've read is to, is to get sound c- correct. You know, like, you know, the guys that I'm writing, they, you know, they're about the script. And of course, writing the jokes is, is easy for me, right? The hardest part for me is to try to figure out how to make this so it sounds right. So it doesn't sound amateurish, you know, as in like what it actually, like what it comes through yeah. in the speakers. And it doesn't, and you watch other filmmakers, like I watched that George Clooney Midnight Sky movie and clearly like whatever you'd want to say about Clooney, he doesn't have, he doesn't care about what this thing, like what the sound design is going to sound like, it, what, 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 what it's going to come out like at, on the other end, because you have just back to back, you know, he's filmed a sci-fi movie with just you know, stretches upon stretches of just uh, music, 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 music. And he's, clearly learned the wrong lessons about how to build emotional beats uh, by taking out the sound, you know? Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't understand thing about things about silences and he, he doesn't but, understand how... But I think that's something that uh, he's fallen into. That's like a trap he's fallen into maybe as the budgets have gotten bigger. Because I remember Monuments Men was awful. Um, and... And it really had that problem, but I mean, uh, good night, good luck for whatever yeah, issues it's a strange that movie one. might have. But I mean, he he he's he very he, there's a lot of silences there. Even um, That's he, he has uh, confessions of a dangerous mind. Even is quite interesting. Um, oh yeah, in its true, sound and its style. I I think at some level he's just become a little more middle of the road, maybe. And he's just, you know, like, I don't know. I mean, like, I've, like, Monu- Ides of March was probably the first one because I never did see Leatherheads. But Ides of March was probably the first one I saw, which I didn't hate it. It was, oh, it wasn't bad. It was fine, but that, yeah. But that was probably the first one I saw where I thought, I don't know if he's slipping a little bit. And then Monuments Ben was just, oh, man. <laughs> anyway, but what I mean is that like the technical stuff is so I find that a little hard to figure out to figure out how to how to mount a sound design just by myself. Uh, I find that you know I've gotten to the point where I think, listen, I can write the jokes, I can write the setting. I, that that is not a problem at all. But to come up with whether like how many labs to use and all of this shit is you know, I feel well, the, the, this the, is this is one of the one of the problems with film, and I, I feel really bad for anyone who tries to do film or TV. Is that unlike writing, it's really really hard to do multiple drafts. You know, you don't get a do over. Like obviously in the editing room, and you can shoot you can shoot more than you need. Um, that plays a role, and you could rehearse, I suppose. You can rehearse the technology, but you can also rehearse the performances. But you don't really get the opportunity that a writer does to actually write a complete draft and then garbage three quarters of it and start again. 
you don't have that lug you don't have that luxury really with film because because it's expensive yeah i mean the obvious answer everyone would be like listen idiot just go out and do it just fucking even if the sound is shit you know do whatever sound whatever garbage sound equipment you have just get that yeah but you have a timeline you have a timeline though that's that's the thing that you know it's like robert rodriguez when he talked i mean i don't think robert rodriguez is a great filmmaker yeah you stretch the imagination right like he's okay but when he talks about um learning to be a filmmaker it's failure after failure after failure after failure after failure like it's 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 quite literally years of failure before he gets something that's halfway sensible and then when it's, once he has that that informs everything that he does going forward it's like oh okay I, now i understand how the sound thing works i understand how the lighting thing works now that i can i can actually work with the big boy toys but now these guys, today no one has that experience these days people get the the big boy toys almost immediately whether it's a prosumer camera or 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 sound equipment that is far less expensive than it ever used to be and and now they're now they're working with i mean i i'm going to sound like an idiot here but now you're you're working in tech support trying to figure out (laughs) why this thing doesn't align with that and why this doesn't connect and why this channel isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing and yeah and deep down i'm an art fag you know what i mean like i was like i don't want to do any of this technical thing you know you know what you should do is you should have a tape recorder beside you and film it on a vhs camera (laughs) you'll get it done faster and 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 it'll probably work better yeah it'll probably look like the thing and it and it'll have yeah it'll have uh like yeah, a retro feel to it. it. There you go. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. All I need is a good, you know, I do like the idea of, no, you know, understanding at least those aspects of it, but just the idea of learning a new thing at the age of when I got fucking white in my beard is just, you know, uh, it feels insurmountable. But maybe maybe I'm full of shit. Well, suck it up. Suck it up. Suck Indeed, it up. Jones. I'm tired of people talking about like as they get older. Oh, you know, this passed me by. I'm too old for this. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I don't, can't learn anything new. Like, just fuck off. Come on, John. It's, it's, it's the same language. level. Language. Please don't use this, that kind of it's language. It's the same level of difficulty <laughs> to start something new when you're 20 as it is when you're 40. The only difference is that when you're 40, you're kind of secretly hoping that you'll be awesome at it right out of the gate. Yep. And the 20-year-old doesn't give a shit as much. That's the only difference. Right. You're, you're on, you feel like you're on more of a, yeah, more of a... We have to justify. Like, like if someone says, well, why are you, why are you doing a, a skit? What's that going to do for you? You're going to make money off of this? You're going to get famous? Ooh. Fancy RF doing his skits. <laughs> Name-dropping local comedians. Mom, oh. Stop. <laughs> stop it you have to you have to justify especially if you have a kid right i mean yeah i feel yeah like let's let's say jason decided he wanted to be a poet and and let's say let's let's say that there was a recipe for a recipe book that you could get on how to write half decent poetry but you know jason knows he has to put ten thousand hours into this imagine that conversation with carly Listen, Carly, I I have a <laughs> I have a burning need to be a poet. So I need a half hour every day to work on my poetry. You need to give this to me. 
It sounds like Chris Farley. Lay off me, I'm starving. There's a van down by the river. Honestly, man, I think if I said I need a half hour every day to write poetry, she'd be like, you only need a half hour? Okay, great. Like, that's the only time to yourself you need? Fantastic. <laughs> but, um, but uh, yeah, it. I agree. I mean, I. I but, but I think... I don't know. I think at some level it's because I have these, yeah, like I definitely have these, this feeling that I should try to do like, like, like if I, like I feel like I want to try writing or, or try to get a film together, but I never do it. I never actually do it. And I know that I probably won't like, it's, it's something that I'll just keep saying I should, I should, I should, but you and need to spend, just, you need to spend some time with that though. Why? Right. Why won't why won't you do it? Why aren't you doing it? Even let's say the end result is the same, you don't end up doing it. I think you owe it to yourself to find out why. To right. really really know. Not just get like, oh, frustrated and be like, oh, I just I don't know why and you just move on and you you put on the TV. No, actually articulate it. Why won't you actually do it? And really, there's only three reasons why people don't do anything. One is they're scared, right? They're scared. Um, they got some funny business going on with status seeking. Or they don't actually really want to do it in the first place. And they're not being honest with themselves. Right. Although when that, when that what, what do you mean though with the second one? The funny business of status seeking. Are you talking about the kind of person who likes to say, like, oh, I'm a filmmaker, but they've never made a film. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. They want they want the status of having done something, but they're not. It's. You know, I mean, it goes back to fear again. So really, it's just two: fear and <laughs> now I think oh, about it. Amongst comedians, it's the classic joke where they do one open mic set, and then you know the next week their Facebook profile picture is just them with the mic. You know, like them at the open mic holding the mic, and they're their their stat their bio is now like comedian like putting it in there like that's a classic you know funny status business status seeking and they only do only ever like open mics around the city well and also i mean i think i think with the, i mean you get that in everything you even get that in sports right like um like in it's not your guy's world but in in, in brazilian jiu-jitsu there's all these memes and jokes about someone who makes it to uh blue belt and then they quit well, I've learned everything that there is to know. I got my blue belt and they just stopped coming back when they haven't even really started their journey. But for some reason, some cockamamie reason, they, they've decided that that's it. I've, I, I've done enough. Um, and, and I think it's the same thing with open micers um, or the person who takes an improv class um, because they really like improv, but then they don't actually go back to do to do doing anymore yeah improv and stand-up are the weird thing you would think that they would you know those two things would go together but the personalities that go into improv really and the personalities that go into stand-up really don't get along well together yeah, i don't you know hate, what it is yeah you fucking hate each other man any, it's really funny any, and anytime anytime i've hung out with with arif and and uh and his comedian friends um that uh, on numerous occasions they'll they they'll just start slagging off 
improv people. And I, I don't really understand it's just it. The very I, just I, odd I, personalities that think that, it's just the very oddest things they find funny. I don't honest, understand. Honestly, I just think improv people are people that secretly want to be actors, but they don't want to have to memorize anything. Yeah, man, that's a that's a. I mean, to be fair to those people, also there's a lot of that in stand up as well. Like Orny Adams was kind of like that guy. You know who that guy was, Orny Adams? He was. Uh, oh. You ever watch that Jerry Seinfeld documentary? Comedian. Oh, okay. Oh, that's oh him. Okay, yeah. And in it, it's a great documentary. It's funny. He he, he has what he has one joke I remember that's a little bit funny where he's talking about the cell phone and it's just the image of him picking up the stool and holding it up to his head like a big 80s cell phone yeah. that uh that's like literally the only joke that guy had that i remember where i thought oh that's pretty good uh, although i've heard a few comedians actually uh kind of defend him a little bit that it, like yeah he got the raw deal in that yeah that he got a bit of a raw deal yeah i i don't you know, I seinfeld don't made him look like the asshole whether it's seinfeld was the asshole but seinfeld is always always the asshole um but yeah, like there are some comedians who have this thing about, you know, well, um, this is just my ticket to Hollywood, hmm. you know. But but I mean about the end. But also, so that's the I, status seeking, the weird but, status seeking, but, I guess. But but also, when you're talking about improv, and I mean, I understand these people are obviously, um, you know, like top of the heap. But I mean, you know, John Belushi and Catherine O'Hara, um, Eugene Levy. Um, I mean, all the people Christopher Guest works with, Christopher Guest. I mean, these a lot of these people, their background is improv, like um, like uh, Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy and John Belushi were all Second City people. So, I mean, it, you know, I, I can definitely think of 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 improv people that that are clearly funny people and and you know, great performers. And I think they probably did learn something that's helped them as actors. Like if I think about Catherine O'Hara, who's, you know, amazing, uh, you know, an amazing actor, I think it's probably, it's probably that, um, um, I think that the kind of improvisation background probably led her to there's just a real um creativity she seems to have as a as a performer like she just makes a lot of weird choices in her characterizations that i would assume probably come from that background this is all really pointless it's just my way of saying you guys need to lay off the improv people some of them are probably good. Some of them are good. Some of them, some of my best friends are improv people. <laughs> Honestly, um, is there is there actually improv in St. John? Like, are there people who there are improv do people? Improv? I just pretend to be above them, so I was like, I'm not going to talk to them. Then the truth <laughs> is, they don't want to talk to. Where, where would they? I don't where, have friends. Where would they talk to me? I mean, where would they where would they perform though like where in St John would you perform improv they have they have like um yeah they have some sort of dinner theater thing that they do oh it's okay a lot that, of, 
Okay, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of like wackadoodle kind of John Mulaney sort of he 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 tea like a lot of you know. Oh, you hate John. You hate John Mulaney. That fucking cokehead. Didn't he go? Yeah, he went. He's in rehab, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I I like to say I didn't see that coming, but I I like it's funny. I I like John Mulaney, and we were out we were out one day, and uh, and uh, I happened to mention him to Arif and. I mean, he must have went. It was funny. It was a really funny tirade, and you did a really great impression of him. But yeah, he must have went on like a. I love it. Cocaine. (laughs) I really like Mulaney. I think that is stand up hilarious. Yeah, I like Mulaney too. But yeah, he he went on a real uh, a real tirade about how much he hates Mulaney. (laughs) So why do you hate Mulaney so much? I don't know. It's just he seems like an odd comedian to focus your lens of hate on. There's so many others that are deserving of much more hate. There is nothing. It's just maybe his face, the way his face looks. It's like that Timothy Chalamet guy. There's something about his little pointy little sort of and his stupid little voices. Yes, I don't like him. But you know, I can get past that because there's one comedian I do really like. But I fucking hate his goddamn face. Uh, it's um, oh, Artificin. I am standing. That's, that's what I. That's what I was thinking as well. Uh, shit. What's that guy's name? Uh, his last special was called like "Fire in the Maternity Ward." Oh, um, he's the guy. Who, he does like that kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Steven, Austra- uh, he does the Australian guy. He, no, no, he no, does, no, 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 no. He's a good-looking. He I fucking know. Anthony Jesselnick. Oh, Anthony Jesselnick. Totally get it. Totally get it. Like in theory, I feel like I should hate him. I hate yeah. everything about his his affectations. I hate the kind of faux like the way he plays up this like, oh, you're all supposed to hate me. I'm such a fucking badass. But his jokes are funny, like because he's got a lot of good jokes. And they, like your mother, they, I killed her. Hmm. <laughs> but you know the jokes. Yeah, I don't know. The jokes make me laugh. They're, you mean he's like, like he's, kind of, he's he's kind of like an old-fashioned comedian, but like twisted towards the I'm yeah so twisted. the dark side. Because yeah. he's all because he's all he, he's about the joke, right? Like maybe all, I'm a mind freak and you're fucking gay. Maybe you ever think about that? Oh. <laughs> Also, he's handsome. And I, I have to admit that I do resent handsome comedians a little bit. Handsome comedians are the worst. Honestly. It's funny. I've actually They're heard fucking... him. I have heard him talk about this, actually. Jesselneck. I think it was maybe on Rogan. Yeah. Um, I, I did hear him talk about this, which, of course, the fact that he was talking about it, there was an aspect of like, oh, fuck off, you fucking dickhead. Like, yeah, you're not talk, actually supposed talking, to. Talking about the fact that you're handsome, you fucking douche but um but uh, but he did talk about it and he said that he realized part of the reason he ended up adopting that persona was that he he didn't have it initially but everybody just really fucking hated him like he just he would go on the stage and everybody was just like really hostile to him um right away so eventually he started kind of well that's endearing yeah leaning into it a bit um but yeah, with him, it's it's definitely a case of I just like the jokes. The jokes are funny, and and I guess with Mulaney, it's the same. I just you know I don't know. I like the bits; they make me laugh. You guys have any big plans for the new year before we um, before we uh, you know say uh, goodbye? Slam the... dunk. Give uh, 
give uh, give 2020 the send off it deserves i'm on call but hopefully nothing will happen all years no no just uh, oh, new, new, year's new, new, new year's eve like i'm on call for work but as long i mean hopefully nothing will happen um but no carly and i were gonna send uh ripley to her parents for the night orphanage and we're, oh. <laughs> and we're just yeah we're just i mean, we're probably just gonna stay in but we'll probably jonathan you're gonna spend spend it with mom probably as as per usual john is frozen oh, oh. i'm back uh oh. Oh, okay said, what what did you uh did, did you have plans for the new year you're gonna spend it with your mom as usual mom and the family what isn't that yeah, what well, you normally well, do you always well, do that every year well, it's a tradition right you and your mom well we'll have a yeah we'll have my mom up for a little bit nice yeah i don't know um, maybe we'll do the cliche thing and watch the uh are there going to be any ball drops or what the hell they call it i bet you're going to do some ball dropping aren't you my friend <laughs> respect respect um what do you what do you get what are you getting up to oh you know some i'm going to get some whores over to my place fucking give them the proper rogering they deserve 30 seconds is all no nothing nothing at all no guys all kidding aside <laughs> you going to drink you to drink alone or uh no i don't know i might go go over to my friend nick's house nicholas has his house see what kind of mental illnesses he's had in the past couple of months what kind of i haven't seen him so i'm sure there'll be a fresh batch that he'll serve me you you going to be socially distanced no 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 we're going to 69 immediately are you caught up with me um anyway so let's end this i think i always like that this is this is towards the end of martin amos's book go pick it up if you're interested there's a great little bit about uh, there's some fun um, uh, interludes with him and christopher hitchens talking about women which is amazing uh they just talk they get into women's tits their pussies asses and very surprised to find out that uh, hitchens was very little bit uh, shy talking about all of that uh but then would get like excited <laughs> uh which is you know which i love uh but this is sort towards the end of the novel i think um he says uh, you are a stranger in a strange land but you come to it with a all right Nabokov's first novel Mary was written in a Berlin boarding house when both the author and the century were about 25. His situation was as follows: having fled the Bolsheviks, he and his Jewish bride now awaited the Nazis, the NSDAP formed in 1920. His father had been shot dead by a Russian fascist in 1922. His mother and his sisters were penniless in Prague. Vladimir was deracinated, declassed, and destitute. and yet mary bears not the slightest trace of melancholy let alone alienation or nausea indeed the only angst nabokov ever ever suffered from had to do with the impossibility of assimilating swallowing all the beauty in the world and his first novel ends with this promise to meet that world with a fresh and loving eye so that's your situation you are a stranger in a strange land 
but you come to it with a fresh and loving eye. Martin Amos. All right. Well, Good writer, terrible reading, but thank you, Arif. What do you mean? Oh, it's just yeah. the throat. It's like you got like dairy or something back there. What, me? Yeah. Just like... Yeah. You need you need me you need me to read it, man. I remember we're I'm supposed to keep reading passages from uh oh, from, man. from from mankind. Oh shit. I want you to read you have to you have to you have to get me that book back. Yeah. So we should we should do a podcast of just Jason reading passages of this book that is literally written about Jason. Jason is the central character in this book. <laughs> you have to listen to him read. Said, do an angry reading. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, Jason just reads it in this kind of, you know, uh, humorless, artistic kind of style that just, you know, it's beautiful. Just, it just, it just fills my heart with joy, listening to him read. All right. Um, well, happy New Year, guys. Happy New Year. All right. Happy New Year. Have a good night. Sorry for sorry for the gay reading. Uh, I thought it would be beautiful. Just, just ended with a big flemmy. What? Flemmy. Why don't you it fucking was just, it? Was just, it was just flemmy. You're I didn't interrupt your reading. I listened to your reading from beginning to end. Why didn't you interrupt me? Why didn't you interrupt me? Tell me to clear my throat, you dickhead. Oh, Jesus, you just yell at me. You just yell at me. I, when I ever yelled at you. All the time. I'm always, I'm All always the time. supportive. I'm always, I'm no, always supportive. No, that's not. I don't, I don't remember that. I'm always, I'm like, hey, John, you're a great writer. You look good and everything. Your haircut looks fine. There's no problem. <laughs> <laughs> he messaged my mother complaining about my ponytail. <laughs> he private messaged my mother complaining about my ponytail. <laughs> what? Can, you, can, you be, can you believe that? One second. Dude. One second. I, I will not stand for this public humiliation. First of all, I I was saying you happy told birthday. my mother yeah on me yeah. about my ponytail yeah I'm a yeah. 40 year old man yeah I know I said happy birthday Brenda can you please ask your rotten it's not child. her birthday it's not her birthday <laughs> I'm close to her birthday or something and I said can you please ask your rotten child to please cut off his awful hair please I requested this <laughs> Who does that? Who does that? My pleas, <laughs> my pleas were going unheard. Is okay. this why you're hairless, Jason? Did Arf? <laughs> no. Drop a message to someone in your life? No, no. He, no. There's somebody in my life didn't need any fucking messages dropped to her to tell me to cut my hair. No, it was a, uh, it was a, an ongoing uh, point of contention. <laughs> For sure, so I I finally caved. Yeah. I caved. Jason, you're just gonna you're just gonna grow back. She knows that, right? She does, yeah. yeah. But that's that's the game. That's the game we've, you know, we've 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 settled into this routine of, you know, I get my hair cut and it's like, oh, there you look better. And then after about three months, it's like, ah, you know, you should really, you should get that haircut. So I'm like, yeah, yeah I'll probably get a cut next week. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and then you know, two months down the line, and then and then it just kind of, it just it, this this is what you call foreplay. All right, we should try it sometime. What do you talk about? <laughs> I don't do foreplay. I just bring, <laughs> I bring out one of those snake charming things, you know, like, I just 
just <laughs> in front of the pussy and I was like, is this, <laughs> madam, <laughs> madam, is this foreplay? <laughs> and then I just go back to, <laughs> um, yeah, I know about right. foreplay, you son of a fucking bitch. Yeah. How okay. dare you? How dare you? My own home. Talk to me about foreplay. I'm going to send you a fucking video. All right. <laughs> Have a good night, everyone. All right. Happy New Year, guys. Bye-bye. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.